Hey everybody, this is Chris from the Sausage of Science. Kara is in Finland. And so we have a special bonus episode for you. A few weeks ago, we posted an interview with Dr. Prasanta Chakrabarty. He is at LSU. Serendipitously, he was here the day before we whipped their butts in football, but that is another story. Today's the national championship. Alabama will be hopefully whooping the butts of Clemson tonight. But again, that's another story. This bonus episode is the lecture that Dr. Chakrabarty actually gave us as part of the Allele series. The Allele series here is Alabama Lectures on Life's Evolution that I have been a part of since I got here in 2009. It is about a 12-year-old lecture series, and several of our speakers that have come through have been interviewed on our podcast, and we have provided edited versions of their lecture for you. And so here's another one. If you like what you hear, make sure you follow us on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher. Um, We're on SoundCloud. That's where we host everything. I like the way it looks on some of those other ones. Subscribe, rate us, do all the wonderful things, and we'll be back at you soon. Enjoy. Welcome to the second Aaliyah lecture of 20, what year is it? 2018, 19. I'm Chris Lynn. Associate Professor of Anthropology and one of the members of the Evolution Working Group. We host the Allele series here at the University of Alabama. And as many of you know, if you've been to any of these lectures before, we generally host around six lectures a year. So above is our schedule, including tonight's speaker, who I'm going to introduce you to in just a second. But we have several speakers coming up. This is the second because the first one was had to be rescheduled. So at the end of November, Dr. Muhammad Nur will be speaking. And then next semester, we'll have Dr. Patricia Wright, Dr. Gabriella Mangano, and Dr. David Leary. Now, in addition to this series, the Evolution Working Group is involved in a minor, uh, the Evolutionary Studies minor. But the point of the minor is much like the point of this program, which is to share with our community the broad applications of evolutionary principles, not just to the biological evolution of life, but how it applies to understand the patterns of life that we see around us. And I challenge you to come up, not right now, but to come up with a a major that isn't relevant to what we teach in this evolutionary studies minor. I think, and I may be biased since I helped start this program, that this should be the minor that everyone takes because of how important and useful an evolutionary studies program can be to understand everything else that is going on. All of this is, of course, possible because folks give us money to allow us to pay these amazing people to come and talk to you. So we get generous support Number one, from the College of Arts and Sciences, but we have departments across the university who kick in to help us provide you with this programming. We are also happy to take your money if you would like to donate, and several people over the years have said, why can't you bring Bill Nye? (laughs) Until we did, and then they asked why we didn't host him in Coleman Coliseum. And we said, well, we need a lot more money for that. And they said, well, we would gladly kick in. 
so we made it possible. All right. So tonight's guest, one of the cool things about tonight's guest is he's from LSU, right? What a coincidence. <laughs> now, now. going to come out in favor of, so we can be generous. <laughs> Dr. Prasanta Chalkarty is an ichthyologist from uh, Louisiana State University, and he, he is generous enough to come up here, and his expertise in ichthyology is just one of the reasons that we came here. So the study of fish, as I'm sure you'll learn in just a second, but he's also uh, an evolution educator and a science outreach expert. So he's published over 65 peer-reviewed papers in ichthyology, evolution, and conservation. He has worked in over 30 different countries studying collections and doing research. He's described uh, 12 new species. He was just telling me about some of this stuff earlier. So freaking cool. Oh my god. He's actually, I'm from Indiana, and he named a species Hoosieri something like, so as a Hoosier, I'm totally stoked. I'm like, that's, that's so cool. Um, a lot of great stories like that. He's been a, a repeated TED speaker, so you can find his talks on the internet. So they, he's been viewed by millions and millions of people. He's been a director for the National Science Foundation. He's active in professional organizations within ichthyology and broadly trained and outward-facing in his work. One of the coolest things, and we just recorded a podcast with him, that I like that he's doing is he's, and the topic of tonight's talk is, speaks directly to this, he's using what he studies as a way to reach everyone, right? So he's taking his study of fish and making it relevant to everyone out there. He's involved in education outreach he has written a guide to academia for students. He's written uh, books on Louisiana fish for kids in elementary school. So he's one of those people who transcends several uh, levels, lots of words. But I'm going to pass the baton over to our guest because he also has lots of words. So when uh, Chris asked me for a title, um, I said this title. And then, like three months later, I'm like, oh, I have to give this talk. What I, what's the title? I was like, oh, making evolution accessible to everyone. I don't remember writing that, but let's, uh, <laughs> let's it's like, let me do it. I, I think we can do it. So I like this idea, though, because um, as I've given more public talks uh, about evolution, I realized um, when, in the past, when I've taught evolution, I've taught to students who had a good biology background. And when I've spoken to other evolutionary biologists, they already had this understanding. And when I've spoken to the public, I realize that sometimes the people that accept or don't accept evolution kind of had the same understanding of what evolution was, but they have a, just a different sense of, of whether they believe it or not. And so I thought, you know, especially now, it's becoming more and more imperative that we understand this. Um, especially what is now the age of genomics. So as more and more people are, are getting to understand uh, their own background, their own genetics, uh, I think it's imperative that we understand evolution. So um, 
I used to make this quip that understanding evolution is kind of like understanding poker. You know, you might get descent with modification, or you might get that there's changing gene frequencies and populations. But just like poker, you might get the order of hands, but that doesn't mean you'll win any money at the table. Right, so um, it sounds very simple, but the nuances of genetic drift versus natural selection versus sexual selection, those things are, are more difficult ideas to get. And so like poker, you, it does take a little bit more time to understand. And sometimes we, we talk about evolution in very short terms, in shorthand, and it doesn't do it justice. I love this quote from the Speaking Evolution page. Uh, from the Alabama PBS series. The problem with evolution is not one of science, it's a problem of communication. Um, scientists like myself, we have to do a better job at explaining what evolution is and not expect that everyone should understand it right off the bat. Uh, it sounds simple to us after we've studied it for so long, but it's hard, it's a hard thing to grasp at first. This uh, quote is actually unattributed on that PBS website, so I'm going to go ahead and attribute it to Leslie Rizzler, who's a co-producer, and my colleague who I worked with at National Science Foundation, and who was at the University of Alabama for a long time. Sounds like something she would say. <laughs> but when we study evolution, or when we think about evolution, this is the real question that we're asking. You know, where did we come from? And I think of this in long term, in, in deep time. But sometimes people are thinking about this at a much more shallow scale. As more and more people are, are doing 23andMe or other genetic tests, they're getting these results back that you know, seem to make sense or seem to be easy to interpret but are much more complicated than they may realize. Uh, we see this in the news today, right? So on this side, the right side, we have these white nationalists who are drinking milk because they read in a study that having uh, lactose intolerance means that they're not pure white race. And having this mutation that allows them to uh, digest lactose in adulthood, which not everybody has, is something that people from their race would have. So they actually misinterpret this a little bit because this mutation has popped up a number of times. It's popped up in East Africa and, and India and other places that also have had traditional milk drinkers. Why you need to be shirtless in the cold is something else. <laughs> you know, to each his own. But this is not part of one political uh, party or, or ideal. Uh, Elizabeth Warren also made a similar mistake by releasing her genetic results showing that she had um, what she thought or what she showed to be uh, Native American ancestry. The problem with that is she's connecting uh, your genome with your race. And the genetics of race are sticky. And the reason for that is the results you get from those tests, 23andMe and others, are a little bit more complicated than they seem to portray. So you can take this with your sister, who you have the same parents with, and you could be 25% more Irish or 25% more Japanese than that sibling. And the reason for that is your genome is a salad. Okay, so you're getting 50% of this salad that is you from one parent and 50% from another. And you might end up with more croutons than your sister did. Okay? 
just by the random 50% that was recombined from their genome. And you might be a family of Italian salads and have a Greek salad and some great-great-grandparent. And you might get a little piece of feta cheese in your salad that they don't get. Okay? Just because each half, each generation, you lose a half. Okay? So that's a pretty complicated metaphor, but that's, that's the one I'm going to go with. So, um, I tell students this, and then I immediately tell them, that 95% of your DNA is exactly the same, or pretty much the same as what a chimpanzee has. Your genome is vast, billions of base pairs of DNA. Uh, and 60% of it is exactly the same as a banana. Right? So most of your DNA is not telling, making you a human being. You might get half of it from one parent and half from the other, but the difference between all of us is so little, it's less than, much less than 1%. So uh, that's why you can have, most of our genome is exactly 95% the same as a chimpanzee. And you're getting half from one parent and half from the other, but most of that's exactly the same. So the little differences are what we seem to focus on, the 0.001% that makes us Italian or Indian or whatever it is. But it's really the similarities that we should focus on. It's a difficult thing to talk about, race, but what it is genetically is a slippery slope when we start talking about it in terms of genetics. There's lots of genes behind how we look, how our eyes, what color our eyes are, and what color our skin is. And so the social construct isn't really a biological reality. So of course I did it too. Right, so I didn't do 23andMe, this is another one that I got for free, but still a good, good, uh, good test. And so um, it comes back with percentages, and uh, I just decided to add like my favorite people from those places. So uh, my family's North Indian, but you wouldn't know that I was born in Montreal, or that I grew up in New York City. And if my kids do that test, they're not going to find that either. But uh, North Indians are a very conquered people, so you know, I would pretend to be the product of Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan, because why not? But the way people say this, you know, you might hear somebody say, uh, if Genghis Khan, he's got hundreds of millions of descendants living today. Well, that's the assumption is that his offspring continue to have descendants, and so just this big pyramid from, from that time to today. It's uh, also much more complicated. So take all of these with a grain of salt. I think about genetics all the time, uh, every day, because these are my twin daughters. They're identical twins. If you're going to be an evolutionary biologist, have identical twins. <laughs> uh, the testing of nature versus nurture happen all the time. I only hug one of these kids. Uh, <laughs> the other one goes to school. You know, one gets lots of sugar candy, the other gets nothing. So there's all kinds of testing going on. Um, they're wonderful, but they have the same genome. So it's an incredible like, thing to see how the differences happen. So I also focus on some of those differences. But um, how the methylation pattern, how the genes are being expressed in each of them, how they have different behaviors. One has an extra tooth. You know, so I think about that stuff all the time. Um, I used to, you know, joke or, or laugh when people ask me, you know, oh, they're identical twins, or is it boy-girl? But you can have boy-girl identical twins just by how your genes are expressed. So even if you have identical 
uh, genomes, you can actually be a different sex. And this is something that you know, is part of the political discussion today too. So what, what chromosomes you're born with, what sex you're born with, and what gender you express, in terms of biology, isn't clear cut, and it's certainly not binary. Right? It's, a, it's a vast uh, range, and that's not just in humans. So you can be an XY female, XY should usually express male, but it doesn't always because of antigen sensitivity. Uh, identical twins could have, you can get an extra set of sex chromosomes. You can express either male or female, which is XXY. So um, when, uh, more than ever, the study and understanding of evolution and genetics is now part of the political discussion as well. And so it's our, our duty to explain this to as many people as possible. Um, I love this quote from the great Alabaman that many of you know, Ed Wilson. We're drowning in information while starving for wisdom. The world henceforth will be run by synthesizers, people that can put together critical information in a wise way. And this is very true. I mean, many people are getting their information from social media or from other people that they trust. And so what is truth? How do they understand what truth is? Um, it's their own construct often. It's uh, something that they're getting from, from people that they trust. So for me, truth as a scientist, we see a natural phenomenon, we test hypotheses that explain that phenomenon, and we try to prove it false. And what's not proven false, what's been remains from that is this amorphous truth. And that's not always something that people understand it to be. So they go to who they trust. They might see a friend who works at a hospital who says, you know, I'm not gonna get the flu vaccine, it's never worked for me. Um, and they'll trust that, and that spreads. The more we see a, a falsehood, the more you start believing. And so teaching people how to get to the truth is something we have to show too, as well. When I teach evolution, I tell my students, I'm never gonna tell you what to believe. That's not my job. I can show you the facts that we have and ask you to find, up, find your own facts and convince yourself of it. So uh, I would never impose on someone anything like telling them what to believe. Just to, just to trust them and trust scientists, something that we're losing. So we have to regain that trust. I think many of you have seen this before, this uh, um, figure showing, showing how the US is down with Turkey uh, in terms of how much of our population answers this question. Human beings as we know them developed from earlier species of animals, yes or no? And we're way down here with Turkey. And when I ask my students, sometimes they say, oh, it's because um, we're more religious than other countries. Well, Italy's way up there with 70% uh, of acceptance. They might say, well, it's our a level of education. Um, well, Japan has almost 100% literacy, so it's not bad. So what is it? It's, maybe it's about truth and trust. Who do you trust? When Charles Darwin and the origin of species was becoming a global phenomenon, the most famous scientist in the US was this man, Louis Agassiz of Sweden, who was a great natural historian, uh, helped us understand what the Ice Ages were, but a strong anti-Darwinist for professional and, and personal reasons. And his influence is a cultural evolutionist. 
that changed how the U.S. decided how we still see evolution. So that's a, a strong influence of that. Now he's a natural historian. Every uh, American natural historian can trace their roots back in terms of training to Louis Agassiz. But we all take our roots back to, uh, to this person, Aristotle, who wrote many volumes about animals and plants. And his understanding of, of this hierarchy, or what, how he saw a hierarchy between humans and other organisms and inanimate objects is still something we see um, displayed today. So most people see evolution, whether they accept it or not, as something like this, a linear progression from simple to what they see as complex, with humans as the most complex. And uh, that's frankly just not how evolution works. We're not moving towards greater complexity. So this linear version of, of evolution is, is frankly how most people see it, going from bacteria to plants to, to ultimately to us. Just as an aside, it's really hard to get a silhouette of a human female that's not like dancing. <laughs> you see that. So whenever that's the pinnacle, it's usually a, a gray-bearded person, man. So if you guys make silhouettes, make some, some lady silhouettes that's just like a normal person. <laughs> um, so evolution doesn't work in a linear fashion like most people think. It's growing outwards in different directions. So when we start from four billion years ago to now, you know, we're working towards these edges, and everything on the edges is equal age, right? We're all from this four billion year old end. So us humans here are on this side, but the bacteria and archaea that's all around us and the fishes that are part of the vertebrate tree of life, all the things on the edges have the same origin. So we just trace back to our common ancestors. So I study the part of the tree of life that is the blue fishes, because I like fish. I don't know why exactly, but I do. And they tell us about how we've transformed as a species as well. Why our backs are S-shaped. Well, because we came onto land and stood upright, and we have a big giant lollipop head and weird knees. But we started in this aquatic environment, and all our organ systems and all our background started in that system. So I like to study that part of evolution, the fishy part. This is me in, in much happier times, uh, collecting mud skippers in Tanzania, areas where I know there won't be the fishes I'm after. Because those little pockets of, of, of space can be where there are new species. And so I've been lucky enough to describe these, these dozen or so new species that are deep sea things, that are freshwater things, cave things, because I, I knew where to go, and that's where other people have. So how new species are born, people think of it in two different ways. So there's new species. What I meant from that previous slide is where are uh, the species that haven't been described by other scientists. But how new species are born is also something I'm interested in. So most species have multiple populations right, that are separated from each other. And usually there's some sort of barrier that allows these species to develop and evolve uh, independently of each other for some amount of time. And so over time, they will 
through genetic drift, through different genes that they started with, or through natural selection, different environments, they'll end up being different species. And so this process called allopatric speciation or vicarious is something I love to study. And so this is a process where you have one ancestor that leads to two descendant species. How does that happen? Well, I study this in the aquatic environment. And when you look at a map, you're probably looking at the land, but I'm looking at the oceans and the rivers and the lakes. This is an ocean view of our planet. And it's one big ocean. So where is isolation happening? How does isolation happen in a continuous ocean? How is isolation happening on this blue planet? And when people look at the oceans, they think it's inexhaustible, gigantic, um, impenetrable. But if you rolled up all that water, that would be it there, that big ball. It's all the world's ocean water, all the world's fresh water, all the water in you, all the water in your dog, that fits in that ball, 860 miles in diameter, which is pretty incredible. That's because the world's oceans aren't as deep as we sometimes think. It's on average only about two miles deep. The deepest parts are about seven miles deep. They're not as, not as deep as most people think. The little ball next to it is all the world's fresh water, which is just 2% of that bigger ball. So today we're fighting wars over oil, we'll be fighting water, war, uh, wars over water. Cape Town, Lima, Austin are places running out of oil. And that 2% that's the world's water, fresh water, is mostly ice in Greenland and Antarctica. Now I said I study fishes, there's about 35,000 species of fishes. Half of them live in that little ball and the other half live in that big ball, the ocean. So uh, I want to know how does that happen? Why do we have so much diversity in the fresh water? Well, because there's lakes and rivers, and they've become isolated, and there's not as much isolation in the ocean. So I use that excuse to travel the world for fun. And um, I spend part of the year, I, I go to the Neotropics once a year, uh, to study what's happened with the Amazon basin as it moves upwards towards North America. I try to go on another trip to a marine environment uh, doing field work in the Indo-West Pacific. So I want to talk a little bit about both of those because the way I study vicarians and, and allopatry is by looking at big geographic <coughs> movements and to see if the biological pattern matches. So this is Central America, where Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Panama, Honduras, El Salvador, and other countries are that connects North and South America. So for most of its existence, South America was an island, just like Australia, uh, in splendid isolation. And so the Amazon basin, other fauna and flora evolved here in isolation. As it broke apart from the northern continent, it left behind the Yucatan Peninsula. You could probably find Cancun there, deep in there. So as the islands that we know of today as the Caribbean islands, they actually formed in the Galapagos side. And they moved between these land masses, North and South America, and may have connected them uh, about 70 million years ago. And as that broke apart, they become what we know as Cuba, Hispaniola, Puerto Rico, and all this time, the fauna is moving around with them. Uh, the big block that just came down 
is nuclear Central America, and then this most important part, the closure of the Isthmus of Panama that finally reconnected North and South America. This is one of the most controversial geological events. When did that happen? And so never look on this little land bridge connecting the Americas as simple. It's incredibly geologically complex. And what I study is I go out and I sacrifice a few fish so that we can understand their history and understand who's related to whom and if that reflects the geological history. So what we found is this kind of repeated pattern of, of South American fishes coming northward, the separation of the South American and North American fauna, and then they start moving back down. And because they're freshwater fish, they're not swimming out into the ocean willy-nilly and crossing uh, onto the islands or other land masses. They're stuck in these fresh waters. And so they can reveal how the land masses have come apart and back the way we do this um, is also through dating. So we use fossils, fossils of different ages, and we attach them to these trees made based on DNA. And we can say, okay, this fossil is 10 million years old. This lineage has 10 different base pair differences. So every base pair means a million years. That's an oversimplification. But with more fossils, with models, we can actually date these geological events using biological evidence. We've done this for Central America and other places, and we can separate the, the timing of the, when the Caribbean and the Pacific separated, and when South American fauna moved into North America and onto Central America. And what we found is that this hard and fast geological date that was proposed by geologists for so long of the closure of the Isthmus of Panama being three and a half million years, uh, may have been much older, and that the fauna is much more continuous than previously thought. Now, freshwater fishes are great because they don't go into the oceans, but the best kind are cave fishes. Because they're stuck in these little spaces, they can be little landmarks telling us deep evolutionary history. So these cave fishes, they're, they're pretty rare. There's only about 200 species of cave fishes. But some of the coolest results that we've ever gotten are based on this. So I've discovered new cave fishes in Madagascar, uh, and I found that their closest relatives were other cave fishes in Australia. And these are blind, three, you know, three-inch long little freshwater fishes. And so they don't swim across the 600 kilometers of the Indian Ocean. So how did they get there? Well, based on the geology, uh, the, the molecular clock from their DNA, and the fossils, we found that they're as old as when these land masses were last together. And so um, it's worth studying biology for, for one thing, for how it can reveal some deep geological history. So that's freshwater fishes. And so we've seen how them being uh, isolated in, in these small pockets can tell us about geological history and, and new, how new species are formed. But how does that work in the oceans, where there aren't these clear barriers? One of the fish groups I work on live in this area between East Africa and Australia, Japan, the Middle East, and they're in marine habitats, and they're called pony fishes, and there's 60 of them. And I always think, well, how does isolation happen in this group? They're really boring looking. Um, nobody likes them except me. They're these small silvery fish, they're in every fish market in Asia, 
Everybody looks them over. They don't taste good. They're not very big, um, but I love them. They're called pony fish, by the way, because you can see how they have a Roman nose. Their mouths go up and down, um, which is probably the only cool thing about them, except that they glow. So they're bioluminescent, and they're not deep sea. So they bioluminesce in big groups near the surface, and they actually can light up a big area of the water. And uh, this is bacteria that they co-opt the light for to attract uh, mates, and they actually can glow up like a Christmas tree. And a lot of this is inferred by their morphology. So we're looking at their bodies to better understand how they're using this light. And the inside of their bodies actually look like mirrors uh, reflecting this light in different directions. And they could actually produce light of different colors as well. So uh, when we look inside of them, they look very much the same on the inside, but the males on the left have these different patches of different shapes. And those subtle differences are all that it takes for isolation. So the females like, some like triangles, some like a little bit more rectangular shapes, and that's it. And these uh, MRI scans on the left show what they look like internally that's producing this light. They also have uh, another cool thing. They, they actually make sounds. So they're producing light and making sounds, and they have different ecologies. Their mouths go in different directions. And that's all a part of the evolution of these, this group. Uh, without isolation, they're, they're finding a way to separate themselves so that new species can be formed. And so that's what's going on in the ocean. We map these characters that might relate to how females choose males. And that's all you need. You don't always need to be in a cave or, or isolated in a different environment. We're looking at this across uh, as many fish groups as we can in the oceans and finding more and more that color um, patterns and, and other features of, of sexual selection is what's driving evolution in this group. So we're in the age of genomics, and we're using more and more genomic features um, to figure out who's related to whom using DNA. We're using this, uh, these markers called ultra-conserved elements that has nothing to do with their political stance, but um, the conserved part is that they're almost invariable. And so these genomic fragments that are pretty short but found throughout the genome are almost identical across the vertebrate tree of life. They were discovered when the Human Genomes Project aligned uh, human genome with chicken and mouse and found these really conserved areas. And that allowed us to figure out, oh, we can use the regions adjacent to them that are hyper-variable to figure out deep evolutionary history. So when we discover these um, magic bullets were in fishes, we're like, let's do the hardest question in ichthyology, and that's the relationships of osteophytes. You have no idea what an osteophyte is, but you kind of do. So they are almost every freshwater fish you can think of. There's 10,000 species of them. That's, as I remind the ornithologist, more than all the birds, more than all the mammals. And so they're an enormous group. Uh, they include your catfishes, your piranhas, your tetras, and your electric eels. Electric eels are not eels. They are actually a group called the knife fishes. This is one I've caught in the Amazon. They're not a very sharp knife. You can see they're kind of soft, but sort of knife-shaped. 
And just like the pony fishes communicate with light, these guys communicate with electricity. And only the electric field can kill you. Uh, these are kind of a lighter electric uh, signal that they use for communication. Now we have these magic bullets, these UCEs, ultra conserved elements. We're like, oh my god, this is going to be the best tree ever. We're going to be super famous. And we got the worst tree ever. <laughs> we got these relationships that no ichthyologist would show another ichthyologist. Of course I did, and got sort of embarrassed. We had, instead of three or four genes, we now had thousands of genes. And so we thought, oh my god, all this data is so good. <laughs> and so what we got is actually that one group of these tetras and piranhas were more closely related to catfishes, and the other group was more closely related to the nightfishes. It didn't make sense. Deep in the tree, short nodes that reflect a rapid diversification along time scales. And we were like, oh, this is not supposed to happen anymore. This is what we got when we had a few genes. And so we found that some of the genes were reflecting a different history than others. We had to create models to separate them. And the reason I'm mentioning this is this is very much like the problem that Elizabeth Warren raised. So in deep evolutionary times, we're seeing some of the same issues that we see when people do genetic tests and say, uh, I'm Italian, I know I'm Italian. Why doesn't my DNA say that? Well, sometimes parts of your genome don't reflect your true ancestry. And so we have to use mathematical models help understand and parse those hard problems of our ancestry. Now this is a group, the Austriophyte, that broke up 150 million years ago on Gondwana, this ancient landmass. And they diversified very quickly a long time ago. And that's gonna be problematic. And we kept seeing this pattern over and over again. And when we looked just at night fishes, we looked at another uh, group of colleagues, looked at pipe fishes and seahorses. So this is a mo-data mo-problem. <laughs> so we thought we're in this age of genomics, we're gonna have all this data, we will have enough to overwhelm the signal that told us these false information. But what we're realizing is we have to figure out how to deal with this data. Just like people have to figure out how to deal with the genetic data that they're getting. The real missing part of what we're, that leads to this issue is that we don't have every organism that all ever lived. If all your ancestors were still alive, you'd be able to see exactly who you're from. If all the organisms that ever lived were still alive, we'd have no problem showing evolution. We'd have no problem showing our vertebrate ancestors. So we have to reconstruct it with all the gaps. The deeper you go in time, the longer you go, this life running extinct. So, there's a reason that we, in our minds, put together this linear pattern from simplest to what we think is more complex. But this is a false narrative. What's more complex? Uh, the genomes of rice and apples and the salamanders that you can get 10 minutes from the campus here are much bigger than ours. They have more genes than us. So is it complex because it's from our view? So when we look at life that's living today, we have to put this together with the few fossils that we have and the time and differences between what's here and what wasn't here. But we haven't even started really describing all this life on Earth. There's eight million species on Earth estimated. We've only described about 10% of them. 
that's why I still go out to these wild places trying to figure out what's still out there to describe. And that's why so many of us biologists are concerned about conservation. We need to figure out what's out there now and to describe what's out there now before we lose it so that we can figure out how life evolved on Earth. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves with the genomic age. Um, we're getting this lots and lots of data but we're still missing lots of the, the organisms that we need to understand uh, life on Earth. There's a push now to sequence all the eukaryotic life on Earth in the next 10 years. This was a pronouncement from these, this group from two years ago, and they're not really much closer than they were then. They, um, the idea here is to describe all life on Earth and make a tree of life with all the genomes of all life on Earth. And the problem is that we have more than a million human genomes and still less than a thousand plant and animal genomes. We're far from, from this goal. Part of the problem is we don't know what to do when we have a genome. This is the, a paper describing the genome of one of the, the weirdest animals out there, the mola mola. The ocean sunfish. This is a 2,000 pound fish with a brain the size of a peanut that gets fat on jellyfish somehow. And um, so, trying to figure out how the genome does that, how the genome makes this phenotype, uh, is something that we're trying to solve. But you can't just do that by looking at the genome. So, I describe this kind of like you know, you put the genome out there and then you compared it to the model organisms like zebrafish and uh, gar and other things that we know better and try to assume, oh, the genes are different in this thing versus the zebrafish, maybe that's why they're like this. But we're not to the point where we're doing, finding causation in the genome for how the phenotype, how the body and how the behavior is changing. What we're starting to do now is compare multiple genomes from the same group along with other genomic data. So these are cichlid fishes from East Africa. One of these is a blind pigment reef fish that looks very much like a cavefish, but it's from the Congo River, deep in the Congo River, the deepest river in the world. We can use genomic fragments to figure out the relationships, to figure out population level, but we can also use the genome to see if it's comparing, if it's producing the same genes as some other cave animal that it's convergently so this idea of convergent evolution, is it something that's only expressed on the outside of the body or is it something that you can see in the DNA as well? A cavefish that we're looking at is this cave angel. This is from Thailand. These guys are the only fish with hips. Fish shouldn't have hips. It has a connection between the vertebral column and the pelvic girdle that allows them to move inside of waterfalls and caves. And they're, they're weird. They're super weird. And so we're doing the genome of this and the robotics and looking at the morphology to better understand how this fish works. Because the only other fishes with hips in the past were the first fishes to come onto land. So understanding this convergent evolution between the past and the present is what we're after with this group. There's new technologies, one called CRISPR, which is basically a gene editing tool it works kind of like a word processor where you can change the DNA sequences of an organism. And we can use this innocuously to look at 
what are the similarities between different organs. In this case, we're looking at the fin rays and the digits of a tetrapod to find that there are homologous or common ancestries in, this, uh, in these two organisms. But I'm gonna take it a little further. And as Yogi Berra said, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. But I'm gonna make some. So we have this gene editing tool, CRISPR, and this can be extremely valuable scientifically. It could also be extremely dangerous. And this is where we start talking about the ethics of understanding evolution. So you can make a designer baby. You could say, I want a baby with these features. Because I can edit the embryo in situ before the birth. We can eliminate mosquitoes. And mosquitoes might be super annoying, but they're also the food of gamblerflies and other organisms that we like. But you can do this because you can edit out male, you can create male sterility or other uh, products to make uh, these organisms go extinct. You can also bring back extinct animals, like Neanderthals. Um, some of you have seen Jurassic Park, all of you have seen Jurassic Park. We will have Jurassic Park. Let me just tell you now, as soon as we can do it, we will do it. It will be messy and, and maybe not as cool as the movie, but uh, we will probably be bringing back organisms that went extinct in the past. So Neanderthals are a group that went extinct 30,000 years ago, a different species than the Arabs. But what, what will we do when we bring them back? Because we have the technology to do so. So our closest living relatives now are the other great apes. We're more closely related to chimpanzees than either chimpanzees or ourselves are to gorillas. But in the past, our closest relatives were Neanderthal, Homo erectus, and other homo species in our genome that lived. So what if we brought those species back? How will we treat them? You know, will we let them use our bathrooms? What, what are we gonna do when we bring back extinct animals that are more, or extinct organisms that lived uh, at the same time as us 30,000 years ago, but who haven't walked this earth? So that technology is gonna get better and better. And we have to start thinking about the ethics of how we uh, incorporate this life on Earth that has gone extinct. And on a side note, the, um, I'm an advocate for basic science research. National Science Foundation, where I work, is a huge proponent of, of basic science research in the US. And this is the kind of research that doesn't have an application that's immediate. So it's not something to fix medicine or, or to uh, create an economic value. It's discovery for discovery's sake. That's why you discover new species. So if you remember I said the, the edges of the tree of life are all the product of four billion years. Just like we're different from that first life, so is the archaea and bacteria that, that exist today too. So CRISPR technology is actually from the discovery of a uh, archaeal microbe from Spain. The uh, amplification of DNA that we do in almost every biology lab in the country is from a taxidermist that was discovered in Yellowstone. So the basic science research that we do is, is imperative. So another quote from, from Ed Wilson, don't let anyone tell you that taxonomy, simple exploration, boots on the ground is finished. So we still need people to go out and discover new species, to discover what's out there and how they work. As a biologist and a museum curator, and for those of you interested in museum work in the future, it's not
not just about collecting and cataloging specimens. It's also about gathering the data that's out there and putting it with those specimens and retrieving them. We have to curate that data, not just the specimens. So we have to map onto the tree of life as we discover it, the ecology, the morphology, where things are found onto this tree of life. Otherwise, what's it good for? Who cares who's related to whom if there's no data later in the long run? As we add the paleo life, we can start dating and aging when these divergences happen. We can think about how life has changed over time and start unzipping the tree of life as well. So that's the easy part. The hard part is the ethics of it. I love this quote from Yuval Harari, intelligent designers. They were wrong about evolution, but maybe they were right about the future. Maybe we're replacing natural selection. As we have the ability to change the genome of different organisms, and we make an artist making transgenic rabbits that glow in the dark, or changing the way a butterfly looks, and we're making new species, we have to start thinking about what we are able to do, what we're still missing from our uh, ability to understand how life is. And so, um, as evolution becomes more accessible to everyone, we have to make sure everybody understands it in the right way. And so the genetics uh, that we are all learning about ourselves and our own ancestry and deep time ancestry and evolution, figuring it out on our own isn't gonna be good enough anymore. We have to make it accessible to everyone. So uh, with that, I wanna thank you kind folks.